the old pilot's plane tales. RAF Form 414, Volume 9. It's the beginning of 1981, but for me it was the conclusion of my first frontline tour of duty. Most military organisations don't let you sit in one place for long. You stagnate and become complacent, inflexible and settled. They want their people to gain experience, cross-fertilise and expand their ability so that in the future they have a broad base of skills to grow from. In 19 years of service, my wife and I lived in 13 different houses as I moved around from one posting and course to another. My final months with the Fighting Cocks was full of new achievements and I was hoping to take my keen enthusiasm to another Phantom Squadron closer to the front line in RAF Germany. For me, this was where the action was. Melting up and down the North German plains, bouncing the NATO fighters that lived and worked there. Harriers, F-104s, Jags, Eagles, F-16s, A-10s and the rest. I was working hard to finish my tour on a high and after an exciting period of dissimilar air combat, I was given the lead of a 2v2 air combat sortie against Harrier. I worked hard writing up the brief, delivering it to the other pilots in the formation, most of whom were senior and much more experienced than I, and then leading and fighting the mission, all the time making notes about the tactics, manoeuvres, kills and disengagements, so that when we returned, I could recall the entire flight for the debrief. This is sometimes the hardest part of a mission for the leader. You only see the engagements from one perspective and the skill is to fill in the blanks using everyone else's recollections. Pilots nowadays have digital recordings and computerized 3D ranges to fight in where every tiny movement of every participant is recorded and replayed. Our tools were chalk and a blackboard to talk our way to a conclusion and extract all the lessons we could the old-fashioned way. This was my air combat leader's check ride. At the time, our station, RAF Lucas, was flying many days of pretend wars called minivals, as we were vulnerable for the big one soon, a tacky vowel. NATO regularly assessed combat units in practice wars called tactical evaluations, when a large team of umpires would descend on a base, usually at some ungodly hour of the morning, and hand the station commander a note telling him he was at war. The sirens would sound, the station tannoy system would start calling everyone to work, and the Land Rovers, with loudspeakers blaring, would drive around the married patch, announcing, Tachyval, 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 report to your place of duty immediately. We would grab our war kit, gas masks, bag, and for three or four days, we would be locked on the base fighting a war whilst the evaluators watched with keen interest, all the time making notes on clipboards. 
The results were vital for the senior officers as a bad mark could result in their immediate replacement and might ruin an otherwise solid career. Our squadron was scattered around various dispersed operations locations, and the aircraft parked in between big concrete revetments. We weren't a frontline combat squadron in Germany, with their hardened aircraft shelters and accommodation. That was still a long way off for us. For the duration, we lived and slept in damp, smelly porter cabins that, for 360 days of the year, sat and leaked in remote corners of the airfield. I was still pretty junior and didn't get much flying. At times I was even put on guard duty around the barbed wire perimeter with my 9mm pistol. On day three, when, late in the night, the Takival observers activated the nuclear attack warning, both squadrons went into a survival scramble, and every serviceable aircraft was thrown into the air as an alternative to trying to survive on the ground. The sight of thirty-odd phantoms firing up and taxiing at breakneck speed to the runway threshold was something to behold. Nobody stopped. There were no takeoff clearances, just a continuous transmission from the tower, giving the altimeter pressure setting and the runway in use. When the aircraft reached the runway, the glare of reheats lit the night sky. As seconds apart, they streamed off into the dark Scottish sky. Within a few short minutes, the entire complement of aircraft had gone and an eerie silence fell over the airbase. I was in the front of a broken phantom, watching in envy as the rest of the boys had fun, or so I thought. In reality, when in later years I had a go, I discovered that after the excitement of launching and trying not to run into someone else during the climb-out, Drilling holes in the sky at endurance speed for several hours wasn't actually much fun. There was very little trade for all those fighters. When all had gone quiet, I got off my wooden crate. My aircraft only had one engine and no ejector seat, but had it been wartime, it was theoretically airworthy. And I headed in for a nice hot coffee. As my tour wound down, I note that I led a three-ship against six A-10s, who were up for a fight. They weren't hard to find, but very difficult to pin down. The warthog can turn on a sixpence, so it could easily break to avoid a head-on missile, and then turn back to stop our stern aspect heat-seekers. The one thing they couldn't do effectively was run away, so we split up, and separated a few miles, and then coordinated our return so that we would pounce simultaneously from different points of the compass. Any turn they made would present a shot to at least one of us, and if that didn't work on the first pass, we could just bug out of sight at 600 knots and come back again. Great fun, and a super bunch of guys who were fiercely proud of their tank busters, and even partook of our squadron party trick of eating raw eggs, shell and all, fresh from the girlfriends of our fighting cock. I see that I survived one trip when the dreaded BLC, 
boundary layer control caption illuminated. Our Phantom had pneumatic air bled from the engines into the wings and blown out across them from the leading edge slats and down the trailing edge flaps to prevent airflow separation at low speed. The air was extremely hot and could cause considerable damage to the gear and fuel tanks if it entered the wing with no way out. The drills required my nav to immediately locate and pull blue circuit breakers 4 and 5 Charlie on the number 1 panel using his snail fork, a special little tool he had to reach down into the cramped corners of the rear cockpit to flip open the circuit breakers. This would isolate the bleed valves whilst I got the speed back below 250 knots and dropped the gear and flaps. The gear wasn't as important as the flaps because once they were down, the hot air had somewhere to escape. Then we were supposed to land as soon as possible. A difficult thing to do whilst limping along at approach speed. I note that I was also given an engine air test to do, which, once proven serviceable, then allowed me to do some more low-level intercepts against the 7th Special Operations Squadron Combat Talon C-130, Call sign Mull. It was almost my final swan song when we deployed out to Cyprus for my third APC and more air to air gunnery. I got some decent scores this time around with a 41% on the operational shoot, but then I see a little cryptic note Greek gunboats. I previously made mention of the tension between Greece and Turkey over the little island of Cyprus, and as we held off waiting for our turn to go onto the flag, I noticed a couple of gunboats cruising along the coast near our gunnery range. Always interested in a military presence near to our sovereign bases on the island, I dropped down to take a look. Of course, I didn't actually have to pass over them at low level in full burner and then pull up into the vertical, but, well, I was young and foolish. On looking back down, what I didn't expect to see was a distinct mark across the calm sea left by my wake, which ended over one of the boats, which was now stopped in the water. Shrugging it off, I took my turn on the flag and got a reasonable score and headed home. I soon realised that something was up when my nav and I were summoned to the boss's carpet and grilled on what we had just done. Apparently, soon after my little escapade, the phones had been red hot from the air officer commanding Cyprus down and back up to government level. I was the cause. I couldn't be exact about my height since the sea was pretty flat, but it must have been below 200 feet as I remember my radar warning going off. The Greeks were furious, claiming damaged aerials and a swamped boat. CJ and I were immediately sent off to don our number one formal uniforms and present ourselves back at the detachment headquarters to wait. Chewing my fingernails, we waited, and waited, and waited. Every time one of the squadron's senior officers passed, we got a glare, 
and the day dragged on, hour after long hour. Finally the flying was over, and people started to leave. The building went quiet, and the sun began to set. We'd been up with the dawn for our early morning flight, and had spent the rest of the day on tenterhooks, but we didn't dare leave. Eventually, my flight commander passed by the crew room where we sat in the gathering gloom and looked up in surprise. You two still here? he asked. Go on, disappear. We dashed back to our rooms, changed into Mufti, and I bought CJ a beer as an apology for getting him all caught up in my exuberance. The boss stayed very tight-lipped about it all, but I have the feeling that he put up his big umbrella and kept me dry from the effluent that was pouring down from on high. As an addendum, many years later I was chatting to a senior naval officer at a cocktail party, and he brought a wry smile to my face. He'd served as an air attaché, and he told me about problems that our diplomats were having during discussions with some senior Greek officials. They couldn't make any headway, he grumbled, as the Greeks kept bringing up some incident between their damn gunboats and an RAF fighter. The Greek gunboat incident. I finished my drink and quietly sidled off, trying to nonchalantly whistle. After the gunnery was over, we used the last few days to give the aircraft a shakedown before the long transit home and took the opportunity to give some of the ground crew a back seat ride. I did an air test with Senjo, the senior engineering officer in the back, and then took Corporal Penman for a joyride. We usually did a few aeros and then took them supersonic and brought them back for a flypast of their mates on the flight line. Sadly, our trip ended early with a nasty bang from the left engine as we accelerated beyond Mach 1, and I limped us home for a straight-in approach to land. It turned out that the big hinge on the left-hand movable intake ramp had completely sheared. I was very glad that nothing came loose and disappeared down the intake. Back home, and I only had a few days left to serve with 43, but I made the most of it. I was in a bit of a fug as my posting had come through. I had been praying for another frontline tour, this time in Germany, which was the land of milk, honey, great flying and duty-free living. When it came, I was devastated. I'd been posted to Number 4 Flying Training School at RAF Valley, on the island of Anglesey in North Wales, a remote corner in the middle of nowhere doing a job I didn't want. My last week of phantom flying should have been perfect. I flew three days of air combat against sea harriers, ending on the Thursday, and on the Friday I was programmed to fly my final trip, a four-ship of low-level attacks against all comers. It was taken for granted that on returning from that last flight, I would have Cant Blanche to beat up the base, which, in a phantom, was an awe-inspiring event. It was at zero feet and in full burner, it always looked a magnificent sight. 
Imagine my feelings then when taxiing in after my final mission against the Sea Harriers to see the squadron troop out to meet me as I climbed out with cheers and bottles of champagne. My last trip had been cancelled. Apparently, saying hello to those gunboats was the last in a growing line of sins that had finally caught up with me, and wiser heads than mine had decided that it was best to end on a high rather than risk disaster. In addition, it was also felt that a quiet tour as a flying instructor would allow me to mature more than three years of dashing around Germany at low level could ever do. Looking back, I can see exactly where my superiors were coming from, and in retrospect, they were quite right. But at the time, it hurt like the devil. The blow was softened a little when I got my logbook back from the boss following my final assessment. An above-average fighter pilot. Good luck as a QFI, Nick, and thank you for your efforts with 43 Squadron. Thanks, Harry, and rest in peace. For me, it was time to pack up and head off to the Central Flying School at Leeming in Yorkshire, not far from where I learned to fly, and discover how to become an instructor. This would start with six awful weeks of ground instruction on the subject of instructional techniques, using at least four colours on a whiteboard. I climbed onto my trusty 750 Yamaha triple and headed south down the Great North Road to Purgatory, only to discover a crowd of friendly faces waiting for me. It turned out that most of the other student instructors were old friends from the Phantom, Lightning and Jaguar world, and this would be something of a reunion. Sadly, there was one old friend who hadn't made it. Dave was due to be on our course as well, I remember him well as a handsome chap with a strong jaw and great physique. He was a keen climber and had taken me under his wing when, as students, we had clambered up Mount Snowdon in the winter. He took me up the Kriebgoch, an exposed grade one scramble and by far the toughest main route up Snowdon. It's a knife-edge ridge with steep falls down both sides and in the snow, ice and cloud we bonded in a way that only the shared excitement of a difficult climb can do. Dave had been flying his Jaguar out in America on a red flag exercise in what was his swan song before joining the rest of us at instructor school. Probably the most realistic war exercise in the world he was flying a manoeuvre at ultra-low level to break the radar lock of a simulated Soviet missile system. The three-dimensional manoeuvre, something that he had developed as the Squadron Electronics Warfare Officer, did indeed break the radar lock, but he momentarily lost control too low to recover. Some years later, during my flying supervisor's course, an instructor played a tape of the transmission that the radar controller made at the time. Bird down! Bird down! As Dave spread himself and his Jaguar across the desert.
If you enjoyed this story, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.